No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. And today we have a special returning guest, former uh, Democratic uh, presidential uh, candidate, uh, Marianne Williamson, best-selling author, political activist, and spiritual thought leader. For over three decades, Marianne has been a leader in the spiritual, spiritual and religiously progressive circles. She is the author of 14 books, unbelievable, 14 books, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. A quote from the mega bestseller, Return to Love, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure, is considered an anthem for a contemporary generation of seekers. Williamson founded Project Angel Food, a nonprofit that has delivered more than 14 million meals to ill and dying housebound patients since 1989. The group was created to help people suffering from the ravages of HIV AIDS. She also worked throughout her career on poverty, anti-hunger, and racial reconciliation issues. In 2004, she co-founded the Peace Alliance and supports the creation of a U.S. Department of Peace. She ran for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, and uh, in 2021, she launched MaryAnnWilliamson.substack.com. So welcome back to the show, Marianne, and let's start for us people that are uh, not uh, the latest in technology. What is Substack? What is a Substack? <laughs> well, Substack, you know, a lot of times when people write for magazines, let's say, the magazine curates. <clears throat> so Substack is a way to write directly for your audience without having to worry about whether or not a magazine will publish you. Oh. So for you can do it for free or you can do it for $5 a month. You know, a lot of people do the $5 a month. They want to support the writer. But you can do it for free as well. So <clears throat> if you go to marianwilliamson.substack.com, you get, in my case, um, there's a meditation that comes in every morning. And then I would say probably two or three times a week, you get an article that I write that might be, or like, <clears throat> or podcast. Like last night, it's um, I posted an interview I did at South by Southwest this last week, uh, or it might be about Afghanistan, or it might be about forgiveness. It might be about 
the two-party system, or it might be about something spiritual. It might be about Ukraine, or it might be about meditation, um, depending on kind of what I'm in the mood to write about. But it's a continuing um, way to receive my work and my writing for those who are interested. Well, you got a new subscriber here. Absolutely. Well, thank I'm you. Gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna tune in and and uh, um, while we're on the subject of uh, the two-party system, which I'm very interested in, uh, Marilia, my co-host, I have a different co-host than I used to have last time you're on the show, but Marilia is an independent, an old friend of mine, and I wor- I wonder about the two-party system, Marianne. Do you have any insights? Are we headed for a third party, given the divisiveness that the country has seen lately, you were in the last election. Uh, you saw how it went. Uh, what do you think? Do you think it's time for a third party or, or, or no parties at all? Well, we need to do some very deep thinking about this issue, and it begins with some historical context. Two, the party system, political parties, are not mentioned in our Constitution. George Washington warned us against them in his farewell address. He said they form factions of men who are more concerned with their party than with their country. And our second president, John Adams, saw them as the greatest threat to our democracy. Now, throughout our history, third-party voices have been very important. Um, The abolitionist movement grew out of the abolitionist party. The women's suffragette movement came from the Women's Party. Social Security came from the Socialist Party. So throughout our history, some of the best ideas have been seeded in third-party context, and then they make their way into one of the two major parties. Now, what happened back in the 1960s was that the Republicans and the Democrats formed a very unholy alliance making it very, very difficult in all kinds of ways for third-party voices, uh, in, uh, beginning with and including, they're pretty much taking over the presidential debate from the Women's Le- Women League of Voters, making it extremely difficult for anyone that is not one of them. We call it the presidential debate. It's really run by, you know, people from the Republicans and the Democrats. It's a big issue. And it is now very difficult to really get your voice in there unless you go through one of those two parties. The problem being that both parties have been so corrupted and taken hostage practically by corporate forces. The Republicans pretty much completely at this point. And then the Democrats, there's, you know, there's a fight raging for the soul of the Democratic Party, the corporatists versus the progressives. But as we know, Senator, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The corporatists are systematically suppressing, peripheralizing, and minimizing the voice of its own progressive members. I don't know why. I don't know why you would work so hard to shrink your base, but for whatever reason they do. This leaves a lot of us feeling very politically homeless right now. Where do you go? So... You're posing a question that I think many of us feel, I I live with it, everybody lives with it, because you're kind of left with, well, like, for instance, I ran uh, ran for Congress. 
back in 2014. Well, on principle, all the principles we're discussing here, I said, I'm not going to take part of that. I'm just going to run as an independent. Well, I learned. Good luck with that. I learned all the ways in which your chances of actually getting elected become less and less and less because of all the institutional resistance to your doing that. On the other hand, I ran for president as a, as a, uh, as a Democrat, and I saw what they do uh, there to uh, leave, get you out of the conversation if you were not part of their preordained uh, political agenda, and basically their preordained group of people that they deem acceptable. I think millions of Americans realize we're going to have to break this chokehold uh, that the parties have on, uh, on the larger political dynamic because of the corporate influence. Some of us will be led to work more within the party. Some will be led to work third party. I think it has to be both and, and I think everybody just has to follow their own conscience. Well, you know, Marilia, maybe you want to chime in because Marilia left the Republican Party after many years. Did you leave Marilia because did you become an independent because there was no place else to go or? Correct. I, yeah. Well, like Marianne said, both parties have their problems. But the, the real. Hello, Marianne, by the way. Hello. Um, thank you for being on. And I, I'm looking forward to this very much. Um, <clears throat> well, basically, sort of the the straw that broke the ca that camel's back or should I say that elephant's back was um, Donald Trump. You know, when I, I was um, working on the Kasich campaign and um, both here in D.C. and and in Hawaii, but and the Pacific. But when he was nominated, that was it for me. I mean, there was just no way. And increasingly, he you know, he proved me right. So that that is why I became an independent. But what strikes me as interesting, and it speaks to what Marianne is saying, um, everyone I know and everyone pretty, you know, that I'm sure you talked to, pretty much people on the whole say they are fiscally conservative and socially liberal. But yet you you see the the sort of polarizing that Marianne is talking about. You see it in both parties um, and you um you see money as the big driver. In other words, there, there's the Democratic political machine, and we kind of wish that the, the Republican political machine were back, but all of politics has become one big machine, and what runs those gears is money anymore. And I think, you know, how do we break that? Um, and I, I would just be curious as to what you say, and you know, as Clausewitz said, politics is merely war by other means, and increasingly, it's it, he's being proven right. Well, let me just add too to what you said, Marianne. I'm a I'm a super delegate, so I'm a walking, talking uh, example of what you talk about, uh, and 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 the parties uh, taking control over the constituents, because that was the whole idea behind super delegates was to keep third party candidates from being able to rise up through the ranks. So, uh, but it, as divided our, as we are, is there, there is no coming together, is there? I mean, look at, if when we look at the war world now, war in Ukraine, uh, nationalism rising in places like Venezuela and India and North Korea, first of all, does this strike you similar to 1939, because it certainly looks that way to me, that, you know, that, that, that there's so many similarities between what happened in Europe 
at the beginning of the Second World War and what's happening now that I find it scary. What do you think? Well, when Trump was president, the uh, comparisons between uh, the authoritarian and alt-right forces that he was motivating and inspiring, um, yes, there was absolutely a legitimate comparison to Germany in the 1930s. And if you look, even though President Trump is no longer in office, a lot of the alt-right uh, forces, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and so forth, all the entire white supremacist um, far-right movements are still active in this country, more so, I think, than the average person even realizes. And yes, absolutely, there is a comparison between them and the brown shirts. Now we have another Hitler comparison, which unfortunately is just as legitimate, but I don't think is... <clears throat> well, neither one of them, by the way, actually comes with a, an easy solution. What's happening with Hitler, uh, excuse me, what's happening with Putin now and Ukraine, of course, comes with much wringing of hands. Um, when and how do you stop him? Um, many people are afraid that if you come to some settlement with him, uh, if Zelensky says we will not join NATO, which he has said, and then if there is some settlement where basically Putin gets the east of the country, Ukrainians get the west, the big question, of course, is the big question that was posed to the world vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hitler, which is will he be satisfied? Will that be enough for him or will he keep going? So unfortunately, the answers aren't clear. But the fact that we have before us the same challenges or challenges very uncomfortably similar to the 1930s in Germany is indisputable. Well, um, where do we draw the line? I mean, there's, there really is only a limited amount of things we can do. And the world seems to be coming together against Putin in support of Ukraine. Is there anything that, that's positive in this? Is this bringing us together in, in, in a strange way? Uh, I mean, I can't, I can't believe there's anything positive about war, but uh, is this going to, you, you, you see any room for a coalescing of a new paradigm uh, in the world as we grow closer together through uh, you know, social media and, and things like that. Do, do, do you see uh, the world coming together around this issue? Or, I don't know, well, I see a little bit of that. The world will not be the same on the other side of this. In terms of its effect uh, on the world, I think the domestic issue and the international issue are very different. On the domestic front, what you pointed out is, is so true and so ironic. Americans stopped bitching at each other for a minute because yeah. we have a common threat. Um, it is really interesting, isn't it, the way the majority of voices on both left and right feel the same way um, about Putin. I know for myself, while I have deep criticism of President Biden's domestic agenda, I have very much appreciated his tone and his energy um, uh, and his behavior regarding Putin. So it's a very different thing, isn't it? It takes us to a whole different place. 
when we're looking at something like Putin. In terms yeah. of the international, uh, the international landscape is, as you said, very interesting because particularly the Europeans, the Americans, but particularly the Europeans, do remember World War II, uh, are aware that you have to stop an imperialistic monster. And I know we've had our own moments, don't get me wrong. Uh, but in this case, it's Russian imperialism we have to worry about. And Europe, the way Europe has come together, it's ironic, isn't it? You create what you defend against. Putin has done more to solidify the West and, oddly enough, more to solidify American opinion in one place. I mean, it's so ironic. Yeah. Um, but it's also tragic and horrible. Uh, what Europe was dealing with uh, was different in one major respect, and that's that there was not yet a nuclear bomb. So obviously we have a problem on our hands, um, which is different and particularly scary, as others have noted, even a tiny, even a 1% chance that a nuclear bomb would be used uh, is a big deal because we should always be sitting at zero. Um, I, I feel confident. I'm interested in what you think, you guys, but I do feel confident both um, on the part of President Biden and the Europeans that people are trying to do everything possible and be very, very careful with the rabid dog in our midst. Um, is that how you would see it as well? Yeah, I think that's very insightful. Morelia? Well, it seems it is, and I, I agree with what Marianne said, but my only concern is that if you look back in history, there have been these horrible moments, World War I, World War II, when changes have been made, and even here in our, in our country, 9-11, where everybody comes together and there's this communal spirit of, 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 of doing the right thing and then it falls apart look where we are now since 9-11 so that is my sort of concern because that's the way if you want to be kind of technical about it it's the way humanity works it's the way our minds work um, and it's the way the cycle of, of uh, social politics works so that's my only fear but it would be wonderful if this would sort of remain well, but don't you don't you see change on the horizon, Marianne? I mean, your popularity, for example. You know, when you started out, and I followed Democratic politics for four years. And when you started out in the primaries, you know, a lot of people did not take you seriously. But when you came out with your message, you surprised everybody. You surprised everybody, I think, and how many people embraced what you had to say. Don't you think there's a longing out there for something different? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you have to be an idiot right now to think that what we're doing is working. Yeah. I mean, at this point, if you are still in denial about the bankruptcy of the system, then I don't know what universe you're living in. We are so close to the edge of the cliff on environmental matters. We are so mm. close to the edge of the cliff on so many areas where clearly the way we have arranged our economy, the way we have arranged our society, race relations, income inequality, COVID, lack of health care, 1% uh, owning so much more wealth than everybody else, 
And now with Ukraine, it's becoming so obvious that our geopolitical organizations and governance structures were not adequate to the task of protecting us globally. I think people are asking themselves if there might be another way. So that the hope is that this moment of chaos might become a moment of kairos. And that's often what happens. You know, Morelia was talking about how society operates, but the breakdown that you pointed out is also the kind of breakdown that often leads to new beginnings. That's what's going to happen now. We're either going down or we're going up. We're not mm-hmm. staying in new anymore. Grace period is over. We either make the fundamental radical changes, and by radical I mean what the word actually means, at the root. We either address the fundamental injustices in our economic system, our criminal system, our food system, our agricultural system, our energy system, our security systems, our um, defense systems. Either we address the corporate rot, either we address the fact that we have allowed money to make us a nation of whores at the mm-hmm. expense of ourselves, our bodies, our planet. Either we, we, we take a good look, we're honest with ourselves, we're sober, we're reflective, and we are courageous and make those changes, or God help us. Because the way things are right now, the Republican Party represents a nosedive, and the Democratic Party represents a managed decline. And that's why your first question, Michael, was the most significant. How are we going to break the corporate chokehold of the two parties? That is when this country will pull itself back from the brink. You know, by, by electing Biden rather than Trump, yes, that meant we didn't go over the cliff, but we're still six inches next to it. We have absolutely got to turn mm-hmm. in another direction. And my own personal feeling um, and experience leads me to think the American people are ready for it um, once the leadership arrives to make it happen. Let, let me ask you, I, one of the most interesting things I, I, I find about you, and there's there's so many interesting things about you, but but I, I, I want to ask you, you went to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Um, what kind of impact did that have on you, seeing war firsthand? Because we really don't have that experience, do we, other than 9-11 and and maybe Pearl Harbor, which was kind of distant uh, to most of us. Uh, What was that experience? How did that change you? Well, first of all, let's be clear. What people are seeing on television in Ukraine right now, we are seeing war up close and personal right now. I mean, what, what is being shown to us in Ukraine, this is historic. This is phenomenal. There has never been anything like it. Obviously, the American media wasn't going to show us the ravages, really, of what America was doing in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Yeah. So we are, we are seeing right now. And I was in Vietnam, and I was in Saigon, but it was before Saigon fell. I wasn't in an active battle zone. So, yes, I was in Vietnam, and we were told very very clearly, do not go five miles out. So there was the fear of war, there was the tension of war, but it's not like I was hiding behind a building while people were shooting at each other six inches from me. So I want to be clear about that. The fact that I was taken there, however, much like when I was that age, my parents took us behind the Iron Curtain. My parents took us all over the world. 
And the effect that it had on us was, uh, I know this is true for me, and I think it's true for my brother and sister. It showed me at a very early age that people are the same everywhere. It showed me at a very well. I was fifteen when I was in um, no thirteen. No, wait a minute, fifteen when I was Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. But my parents started taking us traveling when I was ten, and Mm -hmm. we would travel all over the world during the summers. And so there was a lot of propaganda Mm -hmm. about people that I was really never vulnerable to because when you get something as a child, it's in you. It's just Absolutely. in you. My experience with people are the same everywhere. And not only that, but in a lot of European countries, and interestingly enough, Russia, they love children. At least they did then. So the average person I met on the street was so much nicer to me than anywhere else. <laughs> so uh, that's what I got from it. I got not to buy the lie that any one country is better than any other. Well, and that's so important, isn't it? Uh, yes. You, you've been involved in race relations in America, and I've always seen this as a major problem. I grew up in a city. I grew up in North New Jersey. It was had the highest African-American population in America. Never had an African-American teacher. Never saw an African-American police officer. Never saw an African-American in my neighborhood. And I think that's that's really the terrible part about segregation, right, is that it keeps those lies and it keeps those myths alive because there's nothing to challenge them. I know that my immigrant grandparents believed every stereotype about everybody, you know, and and they lived in an Italian neighborhood where people spoke Italian and they really never interacted with any, any, any anybody else uh, on any kind of a personal level. And so uh, all those myths, all those lies, stay alive if, 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 there, if there's nothing to, to challenge them. Um, it's pretty funny, isn't it? Because you see all these groups that other people are bigoted towards who among themselves think they're better than everybody else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so everybody's oh, yeah. saying, oh, he's black, he's Jewish, he's Italian. But among blacks and Jews and Italians, it's, what do you mean you're not going to marry another Jew? What do you mean you're not going to marry another black? Right. What do you mean you're not going to marry another Italian? kind of funny, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it's just right. demonstrated of the fact everybody's fantastic. Yeah. And the odd thing is our society is so multicultural and you would think that it would contribute to creating a sense of social harmony and this and so with you know this great social glue called multicultural multiculturalism, but yet it doesn't. And I think that also speaks to what you said, Marianne, which is travel at an early age. I think it is a, the best gift your parents could have given you because it creates, and I hate to bang this drum again, it creates empathy and compassion and you get understanding of other people and it creates people like you. And that's what this country needs, I think. I think the whole world needs that. More, some countries have it more than others. And I think we also don't, we don't have as a result because of different things as well, just this, this amount of fortitude that, for example, that you see in the Ukrainians. They have such empathy towards each other and, and they have such fortitude as well. I think those are two things that we're missing. Yeah. Well, it's and interesting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, 
And you notice the sameness, which you pointed out, Marianne. I love my children. Russians love their children. You know, Poles love their children. Ukrainians <laughs> love their children. You know, you, 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 start, you start to come to those common places where we can meet. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Marianne. Well, when I was a child, we were taught the first principles of the United States. We were taught e pluribus unum out of many one. We were taught, and this wasn't just from my parents, this was at school. We were taught that we were big mixed salad. Remember, isn't that the expression they used? Yeah. So we were taught as children that that was the glory of America. And I think that makes a difference. Kids aren't even, you know, we have 11 states that don't even require half a year of American history, American civics, or American government. Too many times kids aren't even taught these days what these first principles are. And I remember learning them in public, public elementary school and junior high school. I didn't have to be taken by my parents to travel for that. And I just meet a lot of people who don't even seem to know. I don't know if they were ever taught that that's, you know, if, if like Maria was saying, a multicultural society. I, too many people aren't taught as a child yeah, that's what we want to be. That's the, that's the first principle. You know, the whole idea of e pluribus unum is we are many cultures, we are many ethnicities, we are many religions, no religion, but there are uni unifying principles on which we agree to agree. And those universal principles, those unifying principles that we are religiously pluralistic, that we do believe in individual liberty, that we do believe all men are created equal, all men have a right to a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we are out of many one. Too many people are not taught those principles. They are not grounded in those principles, and therefore they grow up to be adults who do not stand for those principles. And that's where, that's where we're in trouble, because that's where you see people not only failing to take a true stand for democracy, but even attracted to the authoritarian leaders who arise. Mm. Well, was, was, was Karl Marx right that this is inevitable in a society which promotes uh, people who work towards their own self-interest rather than the common good? I mean, I think good old Karl would have said that uh, democratic capitalism there's no other way to go ultimately except to that place because uh, there is nobody promoting the common good. Do you, do you think that's true? I am old enough to remember a time, and it was before Ronald Reagan got here. It was before the Koch brothers got here. It was before the 80s when I'm not whitewashing American capitalism prior to that time, but there was a social consensus that, as Adam Smith himself said, Adam Smith said, free market capitalism cannot exist outside an ethical context. We were never perfect on this, but the social consensus was that with enough regulation, with appropriate regulation, capitalism and an ethical center, capitalism could be um, prescribed in such a way as to be an aid and rather a harm to people's lives. What happened in 1980 with this trickle-down economic theory 
completely hollowed out any ethical center from capitalism. It formed, it, 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 tur it turned us, transitioned into an unfettered, very dangerous brand of unfettered capitalism by which stockholder value and short-term profit maximization, even at the expense of the well-being of people and the community and the planet, became the order of the day. So Karl Marx said that basically unfettered capitalism was a danger. And he was right because unfettered capitalism was the only capitalism he knew. Prior to 1980s, the United States was seeking to develop in a way that capitalism could coexist with the angels of our better nature. Today, it will either return to its, to its uh, ethical center, we will return to an age of, of, the, of, of corporate America remaining in its lane and not taking over the entire society, even at the expense of our citizens and our planet, or I fear we're going to have some very dark days ahead because the, the peasants of the French Revolution are closer to the Bastille than anybody has any idea. The irony, the dark irony, of course, is that that kind of populist message is actually what Donald Trump ran on. And yeah. he was the opposite in terms of delivering. But at that time, that capitalist, excuse me, that populist rage that emerges from what I said that cry of despair was going to be heard. Either it was going to be channeled through a, an authoritarian populist like Trump, or the other option was a progressive populist. His name was Bernie Sanders, and it was the Democratic Party, the DNC, that suppressed him. And that's why we're in such trouble today. Yeah, absolutely suppressed him. Uh, I was at the... I was at the convention, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, I got to tell you, as is somebody on Capitol Hill that's been nicer to me and my delegation than any member of Congress. And as a super delegate, it's funny, all the all the other people that was run, were running for president at the time that were, you know, basically uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, they said, when are you going to give me your vote? Bernie Sanders is the only person that asked me to consider him, you know, to take a look at him and consider wow. him, you know, and, and I just, I just found that just amazing that oh. nobody else did that. Um, uh, he's, he's an amazing guy. He really is. Marilia, don't let me monopolize the conversation. No, that's quite all right, Mike. Well, Marianne, you mentioned the 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 moral bits and it and it or or however you put it, I forget. But it uh, you you sorry, you mentioned Adam Smith, and it, it immediately put my mind onto his theory of moral sentiments, which is crucial in the society and is what we're lacking. And I think your work, your made your amazing humanitarian efforts and your accomplishments and and what you write about in your book is basically. Um, has to do with the moral capital of a nation and increasing that through a spiritual movement or religion or, or however you want to look at it. But we've had so much of that in addition to your books throughout the centuries, um, but we're still at the same place. What do you think can be done? In other words, how do you think we can turn your approach um, into a practical reality, if you will? 
Well, it's not my approach. I mean, it, I there are universal themes at the heart of all the yeah. great spiritual and religious traditions. And sure. many people are having what is essentially a spiritual awakening at this time, but don't contextualize it for themselves in spiritual terms. People talk about mindfulness. People talk about healthier lifestyle. People talk about ethics, character, forgiveness. Um, people are understanding something is wrong at the center of things. And the neoliberal, and by neoliberal we don't mean <clears throat> uh, liberal as in liberal versus conservative, but the entire outlook that enables corporate power to basically organize your society, people realize now what this has done to us. It has turned us into consumers more than citizens. It has turned us into cogs in an economic um, spreadsheet more than human beings with human needs and morals and values. I think that people are recognizing the damage that has been done. People realize this is why we don't have, have health care like every other major country does because we're letting short-term profits for insurance companies and, and pharmaceutical companies before the needs of our bodies. We don't have healthy enough food because of short-term profits for agricultural companies, chemical companies. We don't have clean energy, and we are living through this horrifying environmental disaster because of short-term profits for oil companies and, and uh, <clears throat> fossil fuel extraction. And we have a foreign policy that is so dominated by short-term profits for our uh, defense industry, even to the point of participation in something such as this uh, genocidal war being prosecuted by Saudi Arabia against Yemen. I think people get it. I think people know this has gone too far. You know, uh, Churchill said that you could always count on Americans to do the right thing after they had exhausted every other option. <laughs> and you, when you look at American history, it is true that often we're slow to get somewhere. But when we do get there, we slam it like nobody's business. And I know even when I was running for president, you know, my experience was that even though the media and the DNC and the whole infrastructure and the system and the party was deeply corrupt, when I actually talked to voters, I saw how good people are. We're not stupid. The American people are not stupid. We're just like people in any other country. My father was a lawyer. He used to say, speak to the smartest person on the jury. But our political system speaks to people like they're stupid, speaks to people like all they care about is themselves, speaks to people in a very shallow way, doesn't give them the straight story, doesn't ever want to give them the bad news, because if they give them the bad news, then maybe they won't vote for me. But what I learned, what I came to believe very strongly running was that even though the system was corrupt, I came out of the situation even more convinced in the possibilities of representative democracy. And I believe the people are ready. And I don't know how the change will occur, but I feel we have a critical mass of Americans who are ready to move in another direction. 
And um, those options are consistently blocked by the political establishment as it exists, but the yearning of the American people is going to break through those blocks. I just feel it in my heart. Well, let me ask you, you know, when you talk about uh, a conscience in capitalism, are are we losing that with the consolidation of businesses into a, a handful of, of hands? Absolutely. I, I noticed that in Ukraine, for example, you have all these people in the United States that own little tiny businesses that give, uh, in fact, are of the foundation I sit on the board just made a large contribution to to uh, the effort of Jose Andreas to feed people over there. You see these small businesses doing great things. But I don't know what Walmart and, and, and Amazon and some of these other guys are doing. I mean, do we lose our, our conscience? I remember one of the family legends that I grew up with is that we were poor when, we, when I was a kid. And when my sister went to law school, she wrote a check to a dairy company in New Jersey uh, with interest because when I was a baby, they refused to stop delivering milk even though my mother couldn't pay them i don't wow. see walmart i don't see walmart doing that you know you know it was a small company that 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 did that that had that kind of of, of conscience so we're losing that the more we consolidate mm -hmm. the less uh reflective we become absolutely we, we it, that's why anti-monopolistic uh efforts are so important you know, uh, Bill Clinton with the Telecommunications Act in 1996, <laughs> basically, so that our all of our media, you know, when I was a kid, the same company was not allowed to own the radio station and the newspaper and the television because there was an honoring of diversification of opinion. And the Telecommunications Act allowed just a few companies to control it all. And that's true in everything. Walmart, it, this is giant, comes into a community and nobody else has any, uh, the small independent stores, the mom and pops, which often are the ones that give the real richness and the culture to a community, are just decimated. Uh, I'm a writer. I've seen what it's done to independent bookstores. You know, that's where you go in and you sit for a while. You might have a cup of coffee. You talk to the owner who knows the books. And who, who, who can even survive in that much anymore, given that everybody orders their books on Amazon? So absolutely. Now, this is an area with Lena Khan and others um, where I do believe the Biden administration is trying to do some good antitrust um, and anti-monopoly work. But, you know, once again, if, if the next administration is um, a Republican one, expect us to go back to the fortification of monopolies rather than busting them. If you don't bust your monopolies, then by definition, corporate power rules the world. It's all about human contact, isn't it? The mom and pops of the old days, exactly. you would have human contact. Exactly. It's not just about, yes. So what we've learned is, okay, we pay 46 cents less, right. but what did we give up? What did we give up? We gave up, you know more stores where they know your name, like, like mm -hmm. what Sarah just said. They knew she couldn't afford the milk, so they sent the milk anywhere, anyway. We've given that up. That's just a complete moral decrepitude that has set into our country. 
once again, the good news is people know it. People know, like, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, and there's I travel a, a lot, and I, I go to different cities. And I tell you, at a certain point, it's all the same stores. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And there's a scientific it, it, underpinning it to human contact. There really is. You you look at people, you touch people, it, it it stimulates the production of oxytocin, which is a major social lubricant. It makes you feel more empathetic, more kindly towards other people. You have no human contact, you lose that. And and it and it just breeds, it foments um resentment perhaps. It just foments a lack of, of socializing, a lack of, of feeling towards one another. Yeah. Store, if it's a big chain with, with you know, stores in 100 American cities, the person who is working at that store is just part of the corporate machinery. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel any particular empathy for the customer because they don't have any emotional investment in the company. But if it's a smaller company, then even people who work there are close enough to the owner Close and that they have, they have an investment emotionally and psychologically in how the store go is does that goes more than just financial, and yeah, I mean, like what happened to America? Everybody's recognizing now, uh, but we were sold this horrible bill of goods in the '80s. The Republicans started it, but no Democrats stopped it. So at this point, none of them can congratulate themselves, although they have the audacity to do so. But the people ourselves are realizing something's going wrong and it's going to have to be, you know, it can't all be fixed by, you know, just a few silver bullets. But I think conversations like the ones we're having in our own personal relationships becoming more empathetic, as you keep saying, Mariah, um, mm-hmm. becoming more forgiving, becoming more compassionate, and then mm-hmm. realizing that those same values have to be expressed in public policy as well. Well, let me ask you, because uh, we're starting to run out of time here, but um, you've had an amazing impact, uh, Marianne, through, through your literature and uh, the things that you've done, the social programs that you've put together, 14 million meals. Oh, my God, what, what an amazing accomplishment that is, and, and uh, all the other social work you do. Uh, any more politics for you? Any more politics in the future? Uh, you uh, thought to run again for president. You know, I worked for Jimmy Carter. He was a one-term president. Uh, you think Joe Biden will be a one-term president? You stole my question. Ah, good. <laughs> yeah, because well, you know, I, they, they remind me of each other in certain ways. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I'm I'm where everybody I know is uh, living with the question. Um, I think this conversation that we've had today, we all get what has to happen. And now it's all of us in our own hearts um, asking, you know, the God of our understanding, what part can I best play as an individual? And so I'm in that questioning um, like everybody I know. it. Um, I think that's the zeitgeist of this moment. Uh, how can I help? I, I don't have a final answer. If I ever have a final answer, Michael, I'll let you know. But uh, Okay, right. please, let us be the first. And let me tell you something. When you were no longer in the debates, we lost an important voice. 
from the moment you opened your mouth, Marianne, you were an important voice in those debates. Uh, and, and everybody recognized that. I mean, it lost uh, substance. Yeah, it, it really did. And, 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 uh, win, lose or draw, you had a, 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 a major impact, I believe on the dialogue that was produced. Uh, unfortunately it died quickly when you left, you know, it went back to the same old, same old politics and, well, and you're but- right. I think we need to change. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, thank you. That's all I had to say was thank you. Well, you know, um, we're, we're running out of time here, but let me ask you, is there something that you want to say, something that Marilee and I haven't asked you that, that you think is important to get out there? Yeah, and that's just what we all know. We have midterms coming, yeah. and don't sit them out. Don't sit them out. Um, There are incredible candidates running throughout the country. Um, Primaries are coming up. I have a website called SeizeTheHouse.com with non-corporate-backed candidates. Uh, Get involved in your primaries, everybody. Uh, You can look up whether or not those candidates have taken corporate money. Only support people who have not. Support people who stand for Medicare for All. Support people who stand for... Uh, at least a substantial cancellation of the Collins loan debt. Uh, support people who stand for more serious climate change mitigation. Support people who stand for ending the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, stopping the war in Yemen. Uh, find out what your candidate stands for. Find out if they stand for an increase in the minimum wage. Find out if they stand for paid family leave. Get involved. Um, the system is corrupt. There is voter suppression. But people can only mess with an election that's close. They can only mess with an election that's close. So as long as we have massive um, turnout at the polls and people vote their conscience and the, with the angels of their better nature, then we'll be okay. Well, and let me just add to that how important primaries are. So many people don't understand the importance of primaries. In the District of Columbia, no person has ever won the Democratic primary and gone on to lose the general election. The Democratic primary in D.C. is the only election that counts. On election day, we go out and hand out, if if you're the Democratic nominee, which I've been three times, you go out and you hand out donuts on election day because uh, you've got it in the bag. So if you're not voting in the primary, your voice may not get to get a chance to be heard. Those good candidates may never make it beyond, uh, um, you know, beyond the the first step to uh, changing the world. But... uh, this year, are you senator? No, I'm not. I'm not up for another two years. Nice thing about my office is it's a six-year term. But I'm sorry. Go on. No, I was just going to say, uh, Marianne Williamson, you are a change maker, and we're so happy that you've been on the show. But please, you have the last word. I just said I endorse uh, Wendy Hamilton, Reverend Wendy Hamilton. Uh, for a congressperson here in Washington. Um, I know her opponent is a, um, uh, is, is a legend in this country, but she's been there for decades. 
And I think we need new voices. We need new voices. We need to shake these things up. And I hope people will look into Reverend Wendy Hamilton. I think she brings a new voice and uh, we need a new voice. And um, obviously the only other thing is statehood, 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 right? Yes, God bless you (laughs) as a statehood supporter and an early statehood supporter. And we very much appreciate that. Marianne Williamson, you're an amazing person. Indeed. Uh, I'm so glad that you're on the show. And I hope we have you back again. And maybe some of the things we talked about today will 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 come to pass. Hopefully in in the in the midterms we'll get some good people elected. And you know, at the end of each show we dedicate a song. So this is uh dedicated to Marianne Williamson. Uh thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Here's the Beatles with All You Need Is Love.